Welcome everybody. Today on Hope Solo Speaks, we get to hear the ins and outs of one of my favorite television shows, Alone. Now, if you don't know, this show is about survival and hunting. It's about soul searching and being comfortable in the quiet solitude. The ninth season of Alone took place in Labrador, Canada in brutally harsh elements. The contestants lived in death-like solitude in freezing, merciless conditions with only 10 items. Now, what was most mind-blowing to me is that many of the contestants actually felt more alive every day when they were out there in complete isolation. How is this? It makes me wonder how many more of us could find health benefits spiritually and mentally, perhaps harder at times physically, depending on how much food one can secure. But if we spent some legitimate time in the outdoors, the real outdoors, when's the last time you've gone camping? What do you know about conservation? Would you be able to find protein? Would you be able to forage? Would you be able to skin an animal? What do you really know about survival? As we enter a strange new world with pandemics, threats to nuclear war, natural disasters, and even shootings, Perhaps honing in some survival skills is prudent to all of us. Yes, I sit on my bed and watch alone and wonder how long I could survive like the rest of you. But today we actually get some real survival advice from a very real survivor. He survived being homeless while attending medical school. He lived with indigenous tribes in East Africa. He was in the Canadian Armed Forces and he specialized in Arctic and warfare survival. He's legit. He is the real deal. And Dr. Timogen Tan also runs a survival school called Survival Doctors, which helps all ages and all walks of life prepare for medical emergencies in survival situations and prepares us how to keep loved ones safe when help is not on the way. Timogen has a wealth of knowledge with both past and present medical practices. And he is here today to share his experiences, and maybe to inspire all of us to make sure we are able to help those in need should we find ourselves in any unexpected situation. Welcome, Dr. Timujin. Um, I'm so happy to host you on Hope Solo Speaks. I told you before that my husband and I are huge Alone fans, we watched all the way back from the start of season one. You, for the listeners here, are obviously a season nine contestant. You lasted 63 days, an incredible feat in the Labrador, the Canadian wilderness. Um, you pushed your body to the ultimate limit. In the end, you walked yourself out of the woods and to the pickup location um, as a way of bowing out with your head held high. And I have to tell you that I welled up a little bit. It brought me to tears and you absolutely inspired us back home. Thank you. That's so sweet of you to say. Uh, obviously, I want to hear about um, your experience on alone, mm. um, but much more than that. So I think I think we're going to save that towards the end of the episode. Um, but I want to talk about how many of these these men and women that you were competing with are trained survival experts. They are the baddest of the bad asses when it comes to surviving, um, as are you. But you were the very first physician on the show. So I, I imagine that would be helpful. 
Yeah, so everyone has their own expertise. We have uh, well-seasoned hunters uh, that have a huge advantage. We have people who have been living primitively um, and uh, primarily wearing like um, leather clothing and using stone tools. And we have ex-military people and uh, just such an amazing mix this year. And uh, I think one thing that is always helpful if you're a seasoned fisherman as well, because fish is such a huge source of not only protein, but fats as well. And uh, for me, um, it was uh, a huge gamble on myself and the network to bring a medical person because um, I guess the biggest question was, what can a doctor do to survive long term? And uh, maybe it was a hard pitch, but I think it was the combination of my traveling experience uh, working with indigenous communities around the world and also my military experience in Arctic warfare and survival. So I think that combination got me through the door. And um, definitely knowing how your body works, the limits and what those limits look like in terms of symptoms and how to avoid those, those were incredibly important assets to me, not only for my experience out there, but in the preparation phase. So a lot of the things that I brought out there, uh, the little tricks that I use out there were uh, medical based as well. Well, I want to hear more about these tricks that you use, but um, I wanted you to come you specifically to come on the show um, because I've always desired to bring somebody on my show that could speak about hunting, um, could speak about respecting the land mm -hmm. at, at the same time. Um, but you offer so much more than that. And I realize that, and you even mentioned it briefly, but you were in the Canadian armed forces. Mm -hmm. um, you trained in Arctic and warfare <laughs> survival um, and then you lived with the Maasai people of East Africa. Uh, you obviously have a wealth of knowledge with both past and present medical practices. So I want to start off by asking you, how in the heck did you end up spending time with the Maasai people? Um, so it started off uh, traveling at a very young age. Um, I grew up and both my parents did international business. So I was always hopping around um, on planes. Um, so at an early age, I, I guess I was more confident traveling alone. So I think at the age of 16 or 17, I started booking one-way tickets and um, primarily doing nonprofit work um, and volunteering. And it was in those communities where I was just exposed to such a different way of living um, and perceiving not only your own health, uh, but your whole interaction with the people around you elders, communities, um, ancestors, and, and so much um, had to do with um, community and your food gathering and the medicinal plants. And I think that relationship is something that is really missed in our common day community right now. To go from, I can get whatever I want to a grocery store to relying on like the fish in the river or the plants in season or rabbits having a fertile, fer fertile um, cycle. It, it, it is such a different um, sense of belonging in that ecosystem. And I've been vegan before and I've uh, respected people who are vegan and I, um, I understand their reasons and their ethics for that. I, I think one of the big I, I think discrepancies is uh, looking at commercial um, commercial processes for food gathering, whether that's if you're doing it for meats or even for fruits and vegetables. You know, we live in a, a consumer society where even if you're vegan, 
the repercussions of what you're consuming is not necessarily vegetables only. You know, a lot of monocrops are uh, built out there who completely destroy biodiversities in uh, these tropical and sub-Saharan areas. Um, and I got to see that while I was traveling overseas. Um, and um, it was really eye-opening because the people who were not necessarily involved in these monocrops, uh, who were hunters and used subsistence uh, living, their impact was a lot less than fielding like miles and miles of, of forest. Um, so in that respect, I have a newfound kind of appreciation for hunting. And even so more so during this alone experience, because you're literally starving. <laughs> so you appreciate every little berry that you pick, uh, every little fungus that you're able to eat. And um, I think you just are so much more grateful for food and um, people who, who have not gone through that um, don't really get to experience that. And I highly recommend trying to do that uh, to put yourself through that uh, test uh, to understand nature to that level. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to go hunt for food, but just try to get enough sustenance for your existence and you will be hungry. <laughs> I promise you, you will be hungry. Um, and if you do it for a few weeks, uh, I think you'll have a newfound appreciation for how life is because you'll see animals take lives. You will uh, see life being born into this world. And uh, that cycle is uh, something that our kids, our adults, everyone, uh, they don't get to experience on a day-to-day -day level. So you went from being vegan to eating squirrel. <laughs> yep, vegans from being squirrel, and it's it, it was such a, a hard thing for me because prior to this experience, I wasn't a hunter. Um, for my like activities uh, during undergrad and uh, medical school, I was so broke that I couldn't afford to go shooting or anything like that. So I, I bought like a fifty dollar recurve that um, that I just shot like almost every every day just to relax. Um, and uh, that skill was just target shooting, but. Um, to bring it to hunting is a whole different level because there's a lot of observation that goes into it, knowing animal behaviors, uh, times of days that, that they're going and when the best time to take a shot was, um, it took me, it took me like several days to figure out when to shoot a squirrel because I was just missing all the time. Um, and, uh, it came to the point where I was consistently getting food, um, because of observation and less so of my actual skill. Although accuracy is involved, but I think it was observation that um, that helped me the most out there. Yeah, well, you looked incredibly comfortable with the bow. I mean, it, it, it you looked like you had been training for some time with the bow. Mm -hmm. um, I, I set up a little archery range, a 3D yeah, archery range. That's all it site. takes, huh? So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I had like a, a little white mushroom, uh, mushroom heads, and I put it in different spots um, at uh, the ranges where I would be taking uh, squirrel and grouse. And I would shoot every morning, uh, until I was very comfortable. Um, if, you, if there are archers in your viewers, they'll notice that the way I hold my, my bowstring is different than I think anyone who's been on the show because of that, um, target shooting, um, training, I was string walking quite a bit. So, uh, depending on the distance, you would notice my finger position on my string was completely offset. Um, so having your your fingers a lot lower on your string um changes the trajectory of your arrow so it's more in line with your eye okay so for those closer shots i was just 
basically putting the point of my arrow tip where I want it to hit. Um, and my gap, um, instead of shooting like a gap, people who um, shoot uh, recurve have like a gap of maybe like a foot or so. My gaps were like in inches. Uh-huh. Um, so that's that's what I did out there because that's what I did for target shooting. And it well, I, you, you look like a professional. And I think for anyone out there who shot a recurve, I don't, or if you haven't shot a recurve, um, I don't think people understand how how much strength it takes, shoulder, mm-hmm. arm strength. Um, I personally have a recurved um, and, you know, I'm an ex Olympic athlete, but it's yeah. hard. It's hard to pull back. It takes a lot of strength. And at the end mm-hmm. of, of this last season, you see uh, Carrie Lee actually mm-hmm. have to bow out because not yeah. because she didn't have it in her heart and her spirit and mentally, mm-hmm. um, you know, she, she was a very, also another inspiring contestant because she was so lively, you know, singing mm, and, and sure. she made me happy watching her, you know, she can be happy out there in the wilderness all alone. But at the end of the day, she lost a lot of her muscle strength to shoot mm-hmm. that recurve. So she had no way of getting, getting any food anymore. And I, I don't think people realize how really difficult it is to shoot the bow and arrow. It is incredibly difficult. And uh, not only that, um, because of the hunting regulations, we were, supposed to use different arrowheads for different types of animals so to take that into fact uh the trajectory and the weight of the arrow tip is different so your shots have to change per arrowhead and when the winter comes um i was noticing that i needed to practice with my gloves on because you have these bulky gloves um and if you miss that one shot that may be a meal for a day maybe a meal for a few days um so sometimes I was um in minus 20 taking shots with no gloves on because I wanted that like accurate hit. Um and it is it is quite the effort when you're starving, your muscles are wasting and you you're still trying to get food. But uh I think the hunter and anyone kind of kicks in and you have a little jolt of adrenaline to pull that bow back, but uh, your accuracy does suffer quite a bit. So um back quickly um with with your kind of experience and preparation for the show, I want to go back to the Maasai people. Um, I saw that you said something about them being um, incredibly happy and resilient Mm -hmm. uh, despite their tough environments. And you said something also that um, you realized was that it's okay to suffer in life. And you learned this from the Maasai people and that they had a deeper appreciation for land and people and animals. I was hoping you could walk us through that experience a little bit more, um, yeah. you know, in your time with the Maasai people. And I also want to know what other cultures you've visited mm-hmm. um, and what are some of their healing and hunting practices as well that you learned? Absolutely. So with the Maasai, it's almost ingrained in their language. Like uh, when you say good morning, Inka Kenya Sidai or good night, Inka Warie Sidai, that means it's such a beautiful day. It's such a beautiful night. Um, the night is good. The, the morning is good. So just waking up, um, their, the, the way their language is and the, the schedule of what they do is incredibly leisurely, you know, like the, they have to be in this tremendously difficult environment, but when you're there and you are connected with your animals, you're connected with your friends, your family, and all you have to rely on are each other and um, kind of these fundamental um, needs. Things are less complicated. You don't have a massive list of emails or responsibilities or taxes or phone calls or to, to do so. In that regard, um, 
things are a lot slower paced. And I think that pace is something that is missed in our everyday society. I can't remember since getting back where the pace was back to where I was at alone or when I was with Masai or any other uh, group uh, that I've been with over the years. It's just our day-to-day necessities is just so fast-paced and so uh, demanding that uh, I don't think we have the time or make the time to connect back with uh, what makes us human and what makes uh, the human experience so beautiful. Um, And the cool thing about being in East Africa is the biodiversity. So you can walk into the forest and see things that you can use for medicines, things that you can use for weapons, things that you can use for poisons, things that you can use for food. Um, And that all changes in seasons as well. Um, So to go through that and to listen to elders and to sit and to learn um, and to go through these practices, uh, making like these implements to procure food was uh, incredibly uh, exhilarating and fascinating to me because um, I was incredibly, I was skeptical about like, okay, this medication is used for like wounds, but just the fact of you being out there in slippers in three pieces of cloth and handling machetes and knives and trying to hunt with it and trying to protect your your cattle and your goats from uh, wild dogs, hyenas, and and lions, you're gonna get you're gonna get hurt and cut. And to use a lot of these traditional methods, it was uh, very interesting to uh, see how well they work. Um, and it's not just um, I think the efficacy of these medications; it's also uh, the almost like the ritual and the tradition that comes with it. There's a lot of spirituality that comes into healing that I think isn't. Um, isn't necessarily in place in our Western medicine. And I think that healing factor is um, so powerful when it comes to survival, that connection with something greater than yourself, uh, that trust in something that uh, is looking after you. And that may be religion, that may be your ancestors, that may be something completely different. Um, But when I was out there, it was to the point, I think it was week two, um, I caught four fish the first few days, and then I was out of animal protein for uh, about uh, 10, 10 to 12 days. And it was at that time where I felt so desperate for something to happen that I felt myself reaching out to everything. So my, my family who have passed, um, the ancestors of the land, spirits of the woods, um, God, or, or anyone who, who was watching my experience out there. And I think that, um, that attempt that just the action of trying to connect um, really helped focus my attention on subtle signs. And I think it's, it's those subtle signs that um, not only motivate us to keep pushing, but actually helps us to find solutions out there. And I was asking for things like animal protein or ways to figure out how to get it. And consistently every single time I asked, there would be something that pointed me in the right direction and I think it was that connection that made me feel never alone. I never felt alone while I was out there because I felt surrounded by these forces that I could not explain uh, supporting me and guiding me. Isn't that something, though, to not feel mm-hmm. alone when you're out there for 63 days and the, you know, the, the solitude of, of your surroundings? And I do want to talk more about how difficult the solitude was, but I guess you're saying it wasn't that difficult for mm-hmm. you. Because, you know, and this is part of your story um, on alone is that you were homeless during medical school and you said Mm -hmm. something to the 
to the effect of feeling more alone because you felt like you had to put a smile on your face mm-hmm. every day, um, yeah. acting like everything is okay. And that that's very difficult to do. And many of us, you know, in our, in our society, we go around day to day, putting that smile on our face and you felt more connected being alone out in the wilderness than you did several years ago before medical school. Can you tell us kind of the differences and Absolutely. I, I guess actually also um second thought here is that you know the pandemic these last two years mm-hmm. m- many of us have been isolated and it's been very difficult for mental health for a lot of people throughout throughout the globe um mm-hmm. the mental health aspect of being isolated but when it's a self-chosen isolation is is that different Mm-hmm. I think it, it really depends on perspective and headspace. You know, like um, if you break it down to what I was doing um, logistically, I was living out of my car. You know, there are some people who do that and are very happy with that lifestyle, saving on money, YouTubing or, or so forth, um, doing that van life. But it was at a point in my life where I was um, in a very... Um, long-term relationship and that relationship ended in a very poor manner a lot of my um, ability to um, not only financially be in a a safe home but also uh, emotionally be in a home was very abruptly taken away from me Um, so I guess what happens in those situations a healthy person would kind of um, gather their support you know go to therapy seek help Um, but I I just felt so down on myself, uh, not worthy enough for that, that um, I just reverted back to my military training. I literally put my old army ruck into my car, um, set up my inside like I would a 10-man tent in the middle of Arctic warfare training and lived out of that for for a year. And we're talking about Michigan winters uh, where it's like minus 30 Celsius at night, waking up with two or three feet of snow during um, the morning and me still going to the OR on trauma surgery rotations and scrubbing in at like five in the morning and rounding on my patients at five in the morning, leaving at like the wee hours of the night and doing it over and over and over again. Because uh, at the end of the day, you invest so much uh, in this training that you can't bow down. Um, So I think my mindset in that time was, um, yes, it was voluntary, but my perspective and headspace was completely different. even though alone was a voluntary um, position for me, the reason why I was doing it was um, so much more powerful to me than me not feeling worthy enough to have a roof over my head. So I think headspace is uh, an incredible, incredible uh, factor in how you perceive uh, your loneliness. Um, One thing that I highly encourage to anyone who's feeling alone out there is not only to realize that there are people in the exact same position that you're in and to openly talk about it, um, but to also have some compassion for yourself as well. Uh, One thing that um, I see not only in alone, but in my patients and my friends and my family, people that I care about is how they talk to themselves. You know, um, I, one of the things that I tried to do really, really, um, well on alone was always having an encouraging and positive uh, self-talk. One of the things that um, was powerful that when I heard it was the the words that follow I am, follow me. 
So when you're saying, oh, I'm, I'm like, I'm so stupid for doing this. I'm worthless. Like you wouldn't say that to a friend, you know? And uh, one of the, um, one of the exercises that I've heard from a psychiatrist that was really helpful is to imagine a picture of yourself when you were a kid, um, go through your, your old photo album and picture, pick a picture that represents who you were as a kid in your happiest moment and just put it up where you can see it every single day and talk to yourself. Like you're talking to that kid. You wouldn't put that person down. You wouldn't uh, try to just be mean to that person. And that's how you should be talking to yourself in that positive, encouraging, motivating uh, manner to bring up a child, you know? Um, And just that simple thing of positive self-talk helps so much out there because um once you're in that negative spiral um that's all you really focus on and when you're deprived of nutrition really that's all you're capable of focusing on um so it's so important in your long-term resilience yeah well i'd like to share with you that uh my father was homeless uh he lived in the woods in seattle um, for a very long time, you know, and we have, we have harsh winters, you know, they're not Canadian winters, but they're harsh winters, <laughs> very wet, very cold. Yeah. Um, and my father was one of the happiest people I knew, you know, mm-hmm. some of my, my best memories were making him some macaroni and cheese with frozen peas and some, some type of meat in it showing up at his tent, you know, off, off, uh, off Aurora for all of those Seattle listeners, um, going, walking into his tent and, and watching the squirrels. Like he, he literally had, he'd be like, Oh, that's my friend. And, and mm-hmm. he was just at peace and calm and happy and jovial. I mean, we had mm-hmm. some of the best, deepest conversations. We had a lot of laughs and he was homeless for a very long time. But, mm-hmm. um, he, like I said, he was a Vietnam vet eventually, um, uh, the VFW helped him find a place and he ended up being able to retire and, and die with a roof over his head. But mm-hmm. I think his happiest days were being homeless, honestly, and just yeah. being connected to the city and to the woods. Mm-hmm. Connection. And um, when we talk about mental health and mental resilience, um, a lot of the recommend recommendations um, are meditation. And just the fact of you being out there and the necessities of um, surviving out there requires you to meditate, requires you to visualize because what you're doing um, when you're, when you're in that environment, when you're trying to hunt, when you're trying to, to just appreciate your surrounding, you're using your all five of your senses. Um, and to do that on a daily basis is so healthy for you. So you're listening for things, you're observing sights, you're observing smells, you're tasting different uh, plants and animals in in your location, and you're feeling a lot, um, both in yourself and both in the ground beneath you. Um, So that is such a powerful thing that um, if it is practiced on a day-to-day basis, it is harder because uh, if you're in a city, you're... It's, it's not the most pleasant things, but if you do it as an exercise, what you're training your brain to do is to um, focus away from that emotional part of your brain and focus it back to the thinking part of the brain. And when you do that, you're just so much more capable of um, controlling your emotions and how those emotions affect you. In the same way, you mentioned your, your father uh, had squirrel friends and all that. 
it's it's about actively seeking out connections because uh, for long term survival, connection is one of the things that is almost required to feel like you can maintain yourself out there. Um, so the fact that he was actively uh, picking things to uh, have these connections with um, goes to show um, that he was approaching his living out there in a very sustainable way. Um, and some of the connections that I made out there, it wasn't only spiritual, but I did have uh, birds out there. So I had ravens. Uh, I was trying to, I was so. You were not really going to eat a raven or an eagle. No, were you? I was not going to eat a, a raven or an eagle because <laughs> okay. they were telling me when the beavers were around. And I was trying so hard to get a beaver. Um, I think um, it would. I think Benji, Benji probably got my 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 beavers because it was day one. <laughs> I saw two beavers about fifty meters away, and from that point on, I was trying to figure out their behaviors. Um, and um, there was the shelter that I made on the beach. I chopped down uh, this um, spruce tree, uh, and when it came down, the head of that tree was in the river. And a few days later, I noticed that like the tops were like being chopped off. So I was starting to set little um, uh, traps for the beavers and just waiting for the beavers to, to come. But every morning uh, when the beavers were near, the ravens would come down and would squawk so loud because I would leave guts on, on the beach. Uh, so we had this relationship uh, that they would tell me, hey, this is like your best opportunity to go down. So I'd run down and try to get a shot at the at the beavers. Um, unfortunately I didn't, if I did, I'd probably last uh, quite some time out there, but if you uh, didn't get that sick was, from the beaver fat, <laughs> if I didn't get sick from the beaver fat, but, um, I was very careful. <laughs> I was very careful with how I was cooking and handling my, my, my meats. Yeah. And how about that? Juan Pablo season mm -hmm. nine winner. Yeah. You're talking about being careful. You know, he's out there not boiling his water. Mm -hmm. He decides to go into starvation mode or I guess it's. I don't know. I don't know his strategy, but I've never yeah. seen anybody do it before. But he went into starvation mode because he thought his body would, I guess, use less calories, less energy. Mm -hmm. um, I guess it wouldn't. I mean, you're the physician here. It wouldn't mm -hmm. start eating itself, I, I imagine. Mm -hmm. But it, unbelievable. Was, Juan Pablo is incredibly calculated. And he, out of all of us, had the most experience with long-term survival and starvation. So before this, he did uh, 180 days um, with starvation rations, and he did another like six months or something like that with his partner as well. And if you look at pictures online of that experience, like he knows what it's like to, to starve and he knows what his body is capable of. So I think the fact that he had that experience and was able to say like, OK, this is what I anticipate if I just sat here and did nothing with an extra 60 pounds on his frame. Yeah. Because um, weight-wise, uh, on our baseline weights, Juan Pablo and I are pretty much the same. Um, but when he got there, he was he was quite hefty. I think he put on, I think it was like 60, 60. pounds he put on. Yeah, he put and on he, 60. He was literally drinking olive oil and mm -hmm. whatever else. That's um, Why didn't anybody else do that? Everybody put on a little bit of weight, but... Yeah, yeah. I think the average in. was anywhere from uh, 20 to 35. Carrie mm -hmm. Lee, I think, did more than 30 pounds. And uh, Juan Pablo did uh, 60 and he was drinking a gallon of milk a day with 30 milliliters of uh, olive oil a day for about six months, I believe. And for me, like I, I'm sensitive to lac lactose, so like that would not work for me. Um, but uh, I, I tried to drink a lot of sesame oil and um, I think 
it was about 10 days. I was, uh, I was able to gain like five pounds just by adding oil to every single meal that in like a uh, coconut, um, coconut oil. Um, but he was very dedicated in gaining weight and, uh, the, it's kind of like a fine line of, if you gain too much weight, um, you are more prone to injuries because you're not used to, to moving that weight. But if you prepare for a loan, um, and this is for all your content, uh, all your viewers who want to be on a loan, and if they ever get selected <laughs> to do boot camp, just assume that you're on and eat as much as possible because it, it it is almost like a job to to eat. Um, I was force feeding myself like six meals a day and still not gaining more than like thirty something pounds because of my fast metabolism. Um, and at the same time, I wanted to be able to move that weight too, so I was uh, weightlifting. Um, to make sure that my my knees and my back wouldn't give, because we saw that as well. A lot of injuries in the past uh, seasons where people just can handle uh, moving when they're in a starvation state. I, re- I recall my my husband played in the NFL, and he was forced to gain. I think they switched positions for him, and he was forced to gain. I think thirty pounds or so, and it was oh, wow. it was hell for him. Yeah, he hated yeah. food, hated it. He didn't enjoy yeah. eating. Um, yeah, I, I obviously have never been in, in that mm-hmm. kind of position, but, um, okay. So back to your time on alone, specifically you, uh, mm-hmm. it almost felt like it was a love story between mm-hmm. you and your mom and you and Gabrielle, I believe is her mm-hmm. name, right? Is that yeah. Right? Gabrielle. Okay. Um, so, I mean, it was beautiful. It was like this beautiful love story. And, and you know, you're watching a sh- an outdoor show and a lone show. Mm-hmm. Nobody expects that. And it was, it was yeah. truly beautiful. So I'm wondering if, if the journey actually really did inspire your mom. Mm-hmm. It did inspire my mom because up until that point, one, one of the things that really um, made me tear up when I got back and I told her what happened and I told her why I was out for so long because she thought I'd be back in a few weeks. And she was like, why did it take so long for you to come home? And I told her um, how I felt about her health, um, her perspective on how she treats herself. And um, and she kind of broke down and we both broke down. And um, she she told me she didn't know that I cared about her that way. You know, and that was the, the first time that uh, we had that moment where it was very clear that um, I had uh, a lot of love for her and that uh, a lot of my nagging over the years for her health and her habits and all that was out of um, was out of love, although it was perceived as frustration. Um, so that definitely put a different dynamic on a relationship. And um, it's something that is a work in progress as as it is. But um, it is something that I'm very proud of pursuing and something that I'm trying to prioritize just coming over tonight actually she's driving from montreal up to, to ontario uh doing that like 12 hour car ride and we're spending wow. canadian thanksgiving together um so it, it is putting uh definitely um a brighter brighter um touch to our relationship and a lot of my other relationships uh, because i haven't really talked a whole lot or communicated a lot about my feelings and how um how I'm trying to operate in the world because I do take a lot of responsibilities and a lot of work on my shoulders. And um, sometimes that could be the loneliest part of uh, a journey, Um, not only for someone who's trying to be a doctor, but someone who's trying to run a business and someone who's trying to be a good husband um, and a good son and all all of that. So uh, I've been a lot more open in uh, communicating those things with my partners and my family and my loved ones. Yeah, you seem to have uh, profound conclusions. while you were on the show 
I guess, while you were in the wilderness anyways. Yeah. Um, yeah. And isolation can break a lot of contestants. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I don't think I would ever survive in the wilds more than a couple mm -hmm. days because I don't do the cold. <laughs> I like to hunt. Um, yeah. I like to be outdoors. I don't talk much about my hunting experiences. Um uh, because I have had PETA come down on me. <laughs> mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have a very outdoors family. We live on 60 acres. We like to teach our kids about the circle of life. Um, you know, they, they see when snakes eat the chicken eggs, you know, and, and if we have to, you know, do something about the snake and why mm -hmm. we have to do it and we explain it to them and, and they love deer meat and they love elk meat and they love fish. We fish, you know, we keep all of our freezer packed with our own meats. We don't purchase meats at the store. We're very proud of that. But at the same time, um, a lot of fans can come down on me for doing mm -hmm. it that way. Um, but it is our, our choice to do so. And, and that's the way we're living right now. Um, and we find it very educational to our children mm -hmm. about the circle of life and their mm -hmm. love for animals, but also their mm -hmm. understanding that sometimes these animals have to be put out of their misery if there's an injury um, mm -hmm. or, you know, if, if our meat is getting low in the winter, we have to do something about it. And, and it's a, it's a beautiful way of life for them right now. I don't know if it's going to change, but right now that's, and they're only two and a half. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they're really learning. Um, yes, I, yeah. I think that's such an amazing thing to um, gift your children as a parent um, it is concepts and uh, realities that um, a lot of kids and a lot of adults don't realize for a number of years. So I think it's a very beautiful thing. And I'm I'm, I'm sad that there are fans or people that uh, go out and ram on hunters. And um, it's it's not that you hate animals or you have a distaste for life. Um, I would highly recommend for people who have that opinion of um, hunting as an incredibly bad practice to talk to actual conservation experts, to talk to uh, wildlife experts and to um, understand the balance of um, the ecosystems and to talk to hunters about animals too. Um, I think out of everyone that I know of, um, if you take an average person who just goes to the store or eats fast food um, and talk to uh, a hunter who literally eats only what he catches and is very proud to do so, whether that's food in the belly or or no food in the belly, um, the love for and the appreciation for animals and life and plants and all that um, is incredibly profound and i think that aspects of hunters is not uh, really perceived in uh, the general public and i think that's uh, a really sad thing and why i hope this show shows um a little bit of a different perspective and appreciation for that cycle and we're not talking about trophy <laughs> trophy hunting to be clear no not we trophy are not hunting. talking about i'm not a supporter of trophy hunting yeah. i will Neither make that clear <laughs> we're talking about um, subsistence living yes of course um but I'd like to talk to you about what you're doing now. Um, mm -hmm. If your life has changed much since the show, I know you're doing um, something called, I believe it's Survival Doctors. Is that correct? Yeah. So Survival Doctors is my business right now. Um, it's something that I've been working on for a number of years now. But after being on an experience like this, you really want to prioritize what uh, means a lot to you, you know, uh, what your mission in this world is. 
And survival doctors was birthed out of the the concept of uh, improvised medicines in underserved areas. So when I was traveling to these countries and seeing what physicians, nurses, and any medical provider needed to do, um, a lot of it had to do with a a very robust understanding of how your body works and what you needed to do to um, help heal it. Um, So what I am doing right now is I'm working with uh, several different indigenous communities and um, providing training in a lot of these key medical um, uh, concepts and um, also providing medical equipment as well. So uh, Survival Doctors is about uh, learning the medical side of survival. And that not only means survival on an alone experience, but it uh, also branches to uh, emergencies. So what do you do in a car accident to stop a bleed? What do you do when you have a collapsed lung? What do you do uh, when there is a fracture? All these uh, things that are uh, very, very uh, relevant in our day-to-day life because people have accidents, people get lost while they're hiking. Um, Car accidents are incredibly high. And unfortunately, uh, gun violence is um, not unheard of as well. So we are teaching um, these community members, um, not only on the uh, reserves, but also in our um, um, local community, uh, to know these skills and to train in these skills so that if ever the need arise, uh, you have so many helping hands that are confident um, and capable of uh, rendering aid. Um, so that's what I'm doing right now. Um, I'm working on an online curriculum and in-person training. Our first uh, training in Canada is uh, in a few weeks. So October 17th is our first round of training and we are fully uh, booked. We may have some wiggle room, but... Uh, you didn't save me a at- spot. Oh, you are always welcome to okay. come on. <laughs> but I do, I do think this is absolutely incredible. I was reading more yeah. about your course that you provide. I think it's, is it always a five-day course? Um, so it's um, a five-day course. There are some extended weekend courses that I'm um, doing in the works. We're working with uh, sheriff's departments across the, the U.S. and also uh, a lot of uh, EMS and wilderness medicine uh, enthusiasts uh, around the, the U.S. and in Canada as well. And if you ever want to do a custom course, if you want to learn more cold weather stuff, um, if you want to do more uh, tactical training, because I do have that mix of medical and uh, military, that's always something that I could uh, create for you and something that I've done for my students in the past. Um, yeah, you, so. You, you um, all walks of life, and nobody has to have any background experience in all ages no. as well? All ages. Um, if you're under 16, I w- would uh, request that you come with a uh, chaperone. But otherwise, all training levels. Uh, right now, we have such a wide training levels uh, to the course uh, coming up. We have physicians, we have uh, nurses, we have uh, people who like outdoor hiking, we have uh, teenagers coming on, uh, we have uh, youth counselors and teachers. So a, a huge array of um, experiences coming in and they're all welcome. Because at the end of the day, um, I guarantee that uh, if you take one of my courses, whether that's online or in person, you're going to learn something that might save a life. Well, I I thought it was incredible. You say um, that the goal is to, and the purpose of your course is to keep loved ones safe when help is not on the way. And that could be anything. That could be the pandemic that we all just faced. That Mm -hmm. could be a natural catastrophe. And I think it's it's really um, important to to recognize that there are active shooters quite regularly, especially here in the United States, not as much in Canada, Absolutely. of course. Mm-hmm. And it, it it is something that we have to address and be able to protect ourselves and our loved ones from. So you're offering protection from a number of different things, which I think mm-hmm. is absolutely incredible. 
Um, you combine your practices from military and wilderness and your experience of being homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like this too, that it's kind of like uh, what it would be post-apocalyptic if you didn't mm-hmm. have healthcare. What if that came? We all need to know how to take care of ourselves. If it was one um, branch of knowledge, one gift that I can give my grandchildren, this is what I would want them to know. So that's what I'm hoping to become an incredible expert in. And that's uh, the knowledge that uh, I'm very excited about sharing. Because at the end of the day, um, I want my family, I want my grandchildren, I want my children to know this. And I do think it's incredibly important because um, our world and its trajectory and just uncertainty. All right. Well, I've taken a lot of your time today. Um, So thank you. But I'm not going to let you off the hook that easily. I want to (laughs) know a couple, um, maybe one or two dangerous medical myths. Mm. Um, So what I I can think of a few off the top of my head. So one of them is um, uh, related to tourniquets. Two of them are related to tourniquets. One being uh, using rope for tourniquets. Do not use that. So uh, some survival experts say, oh, you can use uh, paracord. If you have nothing else, if it's not more than uh, an inch and a half, it's really not effective. And if it, uh, another myth is if you're using a belt, that that's helpful. If you're not able to um, incorporate a windlass, a twisting device in your tourniquet, then there's over a 90% of failure. So you're bleeding out still slowly. So people who run to the scene, whip, take off the belt from their hip and try to like uh, stop the bleeding you're not doing much. You're not doing much. You have to have a twisting mechanism in there uh, to, to stop the bleed. Wow. Um, and snake bites is another uh, another myth. Um, you don't need to find the snake to take a picture of it and send it to the ER because a lot of people who try to find a snake get bit a second time. <laughs> and wow. um, one of the things for venomous snake bites, especially in the US, um, the treatment for it um, is pretty much the same so unless you get bitten by an exotic snake from your friend's uh house um that needs especially uh, special anti-venom um when you come to the emergency department we give you the same thing whether it's uh mm-hmm. it's one type of rattlesnake or, or another so you don't necessarily need to catch the snake you don't put a tourniquet on a snake bite uh you don't suck a snake bite you don't mm. uh, electrocute a snake bite <laughs> you go straight to the hospital why can't we get the anti venom here in our households because we yes. live on 60 acres there's yeah. plenty of snakes yeah, and i'm so afraid i i haven't bought boots for my kids yet mm-hmm. but they know they have to wear their shoes anywhere they go yeah. on the property um mm-hmm. but yeah snakes are are scary around here do you have um so what what uh, state are you in north carolina north carolina okay so um I'm friends with one of the Venom um, directors up in Florida, and he ships over um, any kind of anti-Venom if there's like a a snake bite. So there was one time we were at a conference together and he was teaching there and I was learning there. And uh, he got a phone call to send anti-Venom from Florida all the way up to um, like Canada. So here's the guy to know. His name's uh, Ben. Okay, uh, Benjamin uh, Abo. You're going to hook me up with Ben, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So uh, he's a good person to know. Um, and, uh, also if he doesn't have the anti-venom, um, he will know all the contacts in your area, um, to give you the anti-venom. So he's, uh, almost as fast as poison control. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's all about who, you know, don't go straight to the hospital, huh? <laughs> you <laughs> Just call you should Dr. go straight Timogen. to the hospital, but like, <laughs> I, I would definitely, uh, call, call, uh, Dr. Ben Abel if you have any kind of snake bite, uh, okay. issues. 
Awesome. Um, like I said, Dr. Timogen, I've taken a lot of your time. It's been an absolute, absolute honor to have you on Hope Solo Speaks. Um, you know, you, you, you really, in your time on alone, uh, showed the world kind of how to get back to the basics, um, to live a healthier lifestyle. And you're continuing to do that with your survival doctors course. So um, that's why I wanted to have you on um, to, to really educate our audience and to show people what it's like and how healthy it is to kind of go back to the basics. Absolutely. And the importance of practicing that act of going back to the basic in your everyday life, because we need it. Our life right now is stressful. It is. It's <laughs> no chaotic. matter who you yeah. are. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. But it was such a pleasure to, to talk to you and to, to meet you. Hope Solo Speaks is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts. SiriusXM Podcasts.